Hello everyone, this is Andre, the co-founder of Twins Tours and Travel in Jerusalem in Israel, born into a Christian Maronite family, and I'm a licensed tour guide and an ordained minister of the gospel. I have been leading numerous groups throughout the Holy Land for almost 20 years. Also, I'm an author of several books, and you can find them in Amazon. And one of the first books I wrote called One Friday in Jerusalem speaks about my life story. So join me for a journey of 10 days to understand the heart and the mind of Jesus and to understand the Bible in a deeper way with more details through the Middle Eastern perspective. Please share this podcast with your friends and families and churches and connect with me if you have any questions. Welcome everyone to day number seven. All the group is standing outside the main entrance of Caesarea National Park adjacent to a replica model of Caesarea. You have to understand that this is a huge site. We have an area of 250 acres of ruins and partially was excavated in 1951 and then later in 1968 and major excavations were conducted by Israeli Ministry of Antiquities and also excavations and restorations are still ongoing till today especially in the Crusader part which we will see by the end of our visit the reason we are standing adjacent to this model of Caesarea is to give you a general idea of the site because it's huge and the route that we will take during this visit of one and a half hour. And I will first point for the group, the Roman theater. And I tell them, just look to the left. This is the Roman theater in reality, according to the model, to put things into perspective because the theater is to the left side of the model. And we will start at the Roman theater. And after that, we're gonna continue to the palace of Caesar Augustus and then we're gonna see the hippodrome hippodrome from hippos horses racing the chariots and then we're gonna go walk to the large harbor and we will end by the crusader fortress and this is where the bus will meet us and we will exit from the other side so i would be able to point all these locations on the model for the group to have a perspective what is coming next and what to expect also i tell them you have to understand that the roman emperor caesar augustus gave this location this site to herod the great we are talking around 25 to 13 bc before christ and herod constructed his most extensive building projects here in caesarea and he designed a Roman city according to a Roman model. He wanted to make a mini Rome in the land of Palestine. And he succeeded. And he named the city in honor of Emperor Augustus Caesar. And he built a large harbor and named it Sebastos, which is the Greek equivalent of Augustus. Herod the Great built Caesarea, we can say like 22 BC. He was businessman number one in the first century. He wanted to introduce the Roman culture to this part of the world and he truly succeeded. 
He made Caesarea the center of the commercial and cultural and capital of the region. So it attracted many people to live in, in Caesarea. It depends on the period of history, but I'm talking now about the Roman period. It attracted a lot of pagans, Gentiles. Also, there was a Samaritan community, and also we are aware of a Jewish community lived in Caesarea. And despite uh, the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles, and like 33 years after the time of Jesus, we know the discretion of the city synagogue at this ended in slaughtering 20,000 Jews in Caesarea. And we know about also the, that what caused and contributed to the first Jewish revolt between 66 to 69 AD when the Roman general Vespasian arrived to crush the revolt. He set up his headquarters in the city of Caesarea and directed military operations from here all the way to Jerusalem. And Emperor Vespasian granted the city the status of a Roman colony, making the townspeople full of Roman citizenship. So he granted the citizenship for most of the people that lived in Caesarea. He then gave the task for repressing the revolt to his son Titus, who in 70 AD destroyed Jerusalem and the Second Temple. Following the Roman victory, Titus celebrated his brother Domitian's birthday at Caesarea with a big display of animal fights and gladiators contest in which 2,500 Jews were prisoners of the war had died. Also, Herod the Great had managed to build the first artificial seaport ever built in the history of the ancient world. What do I mean by that? If you're a normal person or a constructor, you go and first search for the foundations to build a seaport below the water. But Herod did not do that. The main harbor in the first century we know was in Jaffa. So he destroyed completely the harbor in Jaffa and created a new harbor in Caesarea. So he went under the water, created foundation, had put slabs of large stones into down the deep waters, and he created his own foundation for the seaport. Until today, marina archaeologists do not know how did Herod build underwater. It's not still clear for them because there was no invention of cement in the first century. And the invention of the cement was not heard of. So the marine archaeologist found that all the foundations thrown under the water were chiseled from every corner to absorb the current of the waves of the sea. And they found the stone's foundation under the water in a perfect order on top of each other's. So until today it's a mystery, but one of the suggestions of the scholars, they said he brought the slab of stones and put it down. On top of it, he put a platform of wood. At the top of the platform of wood, he put another stone. And then another platform of wood, then another stone. And of course, because of the pressure and gravity, the stones would go all the way down. And then Herod ordered the people 
and to take off the wooden platform and because of the heaviness of the stones would be on top of each other and actually till today marine archaeologists are still speculating how did Herod lay these grand huge foundations underwater without the invention of the cement also you have to understand that Herod in Caesarea had built the second largest seaport in the Roman Empire I don't know if you heard about the first largest seaport south of Greece in an area called Port of Piraeus. This seaport was the chief seaport of Athens, Greece, located in the Saronic Gulf on the western coast of the Asian Sea. The largest seaport in Greece by the name Piraeus, till today is the largest in Europe and till today tours go to Piraeus and to see this huge, huge seaport, a Roman seaport, the largest in the ancient world until today. So some scholars say that Caesarea seaport was even almost the size as large as the seaport of Athens of Piraeus. Remember I told you Herod the Great was number one businessman in the first century. So building a seaport large like this will bring revenue to Herod's kingdom. There is imports and there's exports. There's materials for his numerous buildings and projects. He had to import marble and a lot of slab stones from Greece, from different parts of the world. And the harbor also made Palestine easily accessible to the ancient Roman world and actually a 10-day journey on a big huge ship you will arrive from Caesarea to Rome. So Herod had connected the ancient world through this harbor and he connected this harbor with Egypt, he connected this harbor with Rome, he connected this harbor with Greece so it became an important commercial economical empire and he gathered everything to himself now all the group are inside the roman theater of caesarea and i will start to teach about theaters and you have to understand the most ancient of all the theaters found in israel is this roman theater it was built at the southern end of the city by Herod during the first stages of construction. The theater was intentionally aligned so it faced directly towards Herod's palace with two seating areas accommodating around 4,000 spectators. It was intended to introduce a Hellenistic concept of drama and public performances inside this part of the world. You can see the floor of the orchestra, the semicircular space in front of the stage where the important people sat in Roman times was colorfully painted stone in Herod's time and later paved with marble. The front of the stage, we call it the orchestra wall, was painted stones, colorful, there are six wedges of seats. The square place for the governor's seat can be seen midway in the center wedge here. 
You have to understand the floor of the arena itself was made of complete marble imported from Greece. We don't have marble in the Holy Land and they filled all the ground, all the floor, all the arena with water and they displayed and reenacted their battles and the wars that they won. So this theater was to show off the Roman culture and their achievements. The Bible tell us about the death of Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12, 19 to 23, which I will read it for you. And also we have another documentation by the famous Jewish historian Josephus Flavius, also recorded that this incident, the death of Herod Agrippa I, took place in the theater of Caesarea. So I will read for you the scripture and then do a comparison between Josephus Flavius and the Bible. Acts chapter 12 verses 20 to 23. Herod's death. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastos, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country of their food supply. Verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Verse 23, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, the death of Herod Agrippa I is one of the few events that is reported by both the book of, like uh, the Bible, the book of Acts, and also another important book written by Josephus Flavius. The Jewish Wars. The Bible teaches us that Agrippa was struck down by an angel of the Lord while delivering a public address in Caesarea, as we just read. And what we just read was a very short and very brief account. But Josephus Flavius explained it more details. And the immediate cause of his illness is clearly given in the text. The crowd hailed Herod as God, and the king passively accepted their praise, and he believed himself that he is God. And this is why he was struck by the angel of the Lord and fell down dead. Most scholars believe that the account in Acts is generally accurate because of a parallel record in Josephus Flavius. Most scholars believe that the two reports had independent sources, and though they agree in several respects, Josephus' longer account contains more details than the Bible. And it includes the incident occasion, the location, and the aftermath. The book of Acts records that Herod gave the address in Caesarea and Josephus places it in the theater of Caesarea, so it's more precise. The book of Acts does not say anything about the time of day, 
but Josephus writes that it occurred early in the morning. The book of Acts connects the episode with the resolution of a quarrel with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but says of the public address itself only that it occurred on the appointed day. So Josephus relates that Agrippa I appeared to the crowd on the second day of a festival intended to honor Caesar. Now both sources speak of Herod's clothing, but whereas in the Bible, in the book of Acts, says simply that he was wearing his royal robes. But in Josephus' book, he describes the garments as made holy of silver, and when illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun rays, was so repellent, so to spread a horror over those that looked upon Caesar. So Josephus indicates that the crowd hailed Agrippa as God because of his radiant clothing. But Luke's brief account implies that they did so in response to the sound of Agrippa's voice. So both agree that Agrippa accepted the crowd's enthusiastic praise and consequently died shortly thereafter. Here we have archaeological evidences as the theater itself standing till today with historical information proving that the Bible is correct. So here where archaeology meets with history and scripture comes alive. So that was a short introduction about uh, the theater of Caesarea. Then I asked the group a question just to grab their attention. What was the Roman culture all about? I give them a hint. What was before the Roman culture? And what influenced the Romans? Someone from the group will answer, the Greeks, the Greek culture. So I asked them, again, what is the Greek culture all about? If we go back in history, it's all started with Alexander the Great. Remember this young guy, 333 BCE, he formed an empire. This is what scholars say beginning of the Hellenistic period, the Hellenistic empires. And after his death, it was divided and lasted for hundreds of years and spread the Greek culture over huge territories, even, even reached the Middle East. The culture and economic links strengthened through the expansion of Alexander the Great Empire, even its effect on Persia, its effect on the Middle East, its effect on all over the regions of the world. And we know that there was also a Jewish culture and civilization during the Hellenistic period and was very intense in this part of the world. And we have evidences against the Hellenistic culture. But still we can see also the effect of the Greeks over the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion. And we can see that in the translation of the Hebrew scripture into Greek, a translation which survives and which we know as a Septuagint. And that's certainly an example of the way in which Greek literally forms and Greek language impacted Jewish civilization 
and traditions and especially translating the Bible to Greek and later on in the modern times 1920th century from Greek to English and that was a very Hellenistic approach and this is why we have to go back in the original language original writings of Hebrew because this impact extends far beyond scripture we see it in the lifestyle of the people of the Jews adopting many times the Greek tradition Hellenized Jews and we see them in the writing of their plays in their epic poems and in the lyric of the poems and the activity have centered like at that time Hellenism among the Jews in Alexandria the capital of Egypt and there were similar activities going in Palestine too and some of these literally products that survive in some cases only in fragments were probably written in Palestine by Jews who were adopting the Hellenistic culture for example we know about Sephori Sephori was a very big Roman Hellenistic time where Jews Hellenized lived in Sipori and we can see that in the synagogue of Sipori we see on the floor of the synagogue a zodiac zodiac is a Roman calendar what is a Roman calendar doing in a Jewish synagogue so this is Hellenism and we see a lot of like we found a lot of fragments of also writings in Greek language for Hellenized Jews that lived in Sipori in Palestine. So we can see the effect of philosophy, art, the influence of like the Western civilization, the Greek civilization over this part of the world. And also how all these ideas were spread through the commercial connections remember Caesarea is seaport so it's connected Europe with the Middle East and Asia and all began during Alexander reign let me expand more I'll be so much respectful to the Western culture and I will not do a comparison between what is Hellenism and how people thought in the first century and how many Jews and Jesus and his followers and the believers did not want to be part of this Hellenistic culture their eyes will be opened not to integrate and become Hellenized so they preserved the laws of Moses let me explain for you what is a Roman Greek Hellenized perspective and how it affected the church today because how the Romans think it's all about me it's about what I feel today I feel really good I gonna have a great day I feel really bad I gonna have a bad day it's not about me it's not about my feelings it's not about what I think I gonna eat today or what I gonna eat for lunch or what I gonna eat for dinner these thoughts are affected by the Romans it's self-centered culture will I go to the gym today will I love my pet now nothing wrong with that but when it controls you it's worshiping yourself you become like God you become like Herod 
to worship your body. That's the Roman way of thinking. It's all about me. I called all of these, excuse me with this, but I call all of this first world problems. It's all Hellenistic approach. People want to be and feel important. But with Jewish culture, with Jesus culture, and the church culture is totally different. It's not all about me. It's all about the community. We do not have to depend only on our feelings to walk the Christian walk. Now, feelings are important. Do not misunderstand me. But feelings comes and goes. But the word of God is steady. Because it depends on the truth. It's not about I'm feeling good or bad. It's about doing the truth. Walking in the truth. And build my life on not how I feel. But build my life and live according to the Bible. According to the word of God. According to scripture. It's all about serving others. All the word is not about me. By the way, I'm teaching it to myself. I'm preaching to myself. It's about my family. It's about my community. It's about my church. Upside down kingdom. You have to take care of your brothers and sisters. And bless them. And then we will be blessed. It's not God, bless me, bless me, bless me. It's all about me, 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 Andre, Andre, Andre. No, it's not about that. It's about how I can be blessing to others. And let me explain more. The Roman Hellenized history is all about pleasuring and self-esteem. And it's all about entertainment and having fun. Is one of the ultimate goals in life. You know what? It's not about having fun in life. Fun is great. But that's not life. Life is not all about traveling or about adventures. Nothing wrong with that, but it should not be the focus. In the West, I can see it's such an entertainment culture. Just people are bored. They want to be entertained all the time, like the Roman period. Entertainment 24-7. Having fun. But life is not all about having fun. Life is also about suffering. It's not prosperity gospel. Suffering is part of our life. Suffering is part of our walk. Because if we suffer in our life, we will appreciate fun. But to have fun 24 hours... All the time, seven days a week, that is not logical. That's like out of proportion. Because you're bored, you want to have fun all the time. That does not work. That's like the Romans. Allow me to stretch you more. Even I was in toilets that have TV inside the toilet with music. What do you need a TV inside the toilets? It's like the Romans, entertainment, mixed toilets, you know what? Unisex toilets. Why? It's a Roman way of thinking. And even like 
gay marriages I hear, even in the church. This is sin. You cannot blur sin. Sin is sin in the Bible. It's not because about me, I want the comfort or I want the respect or I want to be happy all the time. In my first trips to the United States, I like history. So I went to Philadelphia and learned about the Constitution. And it's a well-known phrase in the United States, the Declaration of Independence. And it says, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, there's nothing wrong in that. But we should say, the believers, life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Holiness is the essence of the God of Israel. But instead, it's all about how to make life easy, like the Romans. We do not want to work hard. We want to work smart, but not hard. That is great. And today, everyone is talking about passive income, prosperity gospel. Name it and claim it. That's not the Bible. That's not good teaching. We talk about newest, quickest things we can get. Gadgets, more possessions in our life. The more possessions we have, the less free we become. We are having a culture that we are amusing ourselves even to spiritual death. Like again, what happened in theaters? They amused themselves like gladiators and showing off to death, amusement to death. The American dream, it's all about me, me, me. I will make it so personal to you and give you a personal example. I had a dream. Once I was sitting in my apartment inside the old city of Jerusalem and I was watching an NBA game. And one of my dreams, I had so many dreams, one of my dreams as a kid was to watch a real NBA basketball game. Not only in TV, but in a real stadium, a real game. And one day, my dream came true. I was in San Antonio, and I was visiting Texas. And I bought a ticket online, and I drove all the way to the ATT Center Stadium in San Antonio to watch this game. I had a culture shock. We're talking about cultures and culture shock. I had a culture shock as a young boy, Palestinian Christian, coming from a small old city of Jerusalem, because probably the stadium size was the size of the old city, even bigger. And as soon as I arrived and parked the car, I had a culture shock. The parking lot was huge. I can get easily lost. And I paid like $10 for the parking lot. And I paid like, it was expensive. I paid $150 online to book this ticket. So I am figuring that it's all about money now. It's so much like the similar to the Roman culture. It's like the Roman Empire and theaters. So it took me 20 minutes from the parking lot to arrive to the stadium and got my seat. I was so disappointed because my seat was far away. 
And when I looked at the playground, everything looked so small to me. Some entertainment started and the cheerleaders came out and danced. And then some announcement after that. And then finally the players showed up and they started to play. I was so excited, but I got so much disappointed because I could not see the players. And they looked tiny, far from me. And I preferred like my small TV screen in the old city in Jerusalem, in my humble room, which showed me better views. I guess it's my first time to book uh, a game and to watch a real game. So I did not understand how to do it. I'd done it by myself. So the seats were far away. And the seats in the front were so expensive. It reached like 500, even more, more than that. So I was not able really to enjoy the game, but I enjoyed the entertainment. There was a lot of distraction. People passing by and selling things, drinks, food, hot dogs, beer. Then, after 15 minutes of playing, they stopped playing. There was more distraction, cheerleaders. And then it displayed, and they were shooting some things in the air. I could not understand what they were shooting in the beginning, but later I asked, it was, they were shooting shirts on the air. And then the game started after the cheerleaders left. And for another 15 minutes. So I, the game was not really good. It was San Antonio Spurs with Arizona team, the Suns, I think. I was disappointed. They were not really like the TV playing so much good anyway. And more things are flying on top of our heads. And what is happening? So much distracting. I was not disappointed. I could not focus on the game. So I decided to have a beer anyway. And I was watching and actually I was waiting for the cheerleaders to come up because the game was really not good. And they did not play really good. I don't know why. Maybe I had too much beer, but <laughs> I was so much distracted. My point by the entertainment that I did not enjoy the game, but enjoyed the distraction. This is the point I want to make. This is how things look. It's all about entertainment culture. So what is Jesus culture? What did he tell his disciples in the first century with the Hellenized Romans? Because we know that Jesus lived under the Hellenized Roman period. That was the peak of Hellenism in the first century. Because Jesus grew up in Galilee, which was at that time under Herod Antipas' control and undergoing a huge form of Hellenism. Jesus challenged his disciples and he told them to counterfeit the Roman culture. We should challenge the Hellenized culture. You should struggle and challenge with your culture because it's not about the American culture. It's about the Bible culture. And the Bible said we should put ourselves last, not first. We need to serve others and not to be only served. We need to connect to the family. We need to connect to the community and not to have only individualistic approach of life. 
We need to trust God and not our bank accounts. It's not about us anymore or about me. We need to be real with ourselves. And look what Jesus said. He mentioned and he used in scripture a Greek word for a reason. The Greek word is hypocritic. He mentioned this word 17 times. Hypocrite. For a reason, he wants to make a point. What does the word hypocrite mean? It means actors. What is Jesus calling the Romans and the people in the theater? He's calling them actors. Or they're acting. What is the Romans doing in a theater? They act. They hide behind and put masks, fake masks on their faces and act. They want to believe they are powerful. They hide from their reality. Think today in the Western culture, celebrities of the day, fake celebrities of the day, reality shows, real TV, and by the way, reality shows, real TV is not even real. It's just showing off, putting masks, hiding behind real life. It's such an imaginary life. They want to feel good. They want to look good and powerful. And look what Jesus is saying. You are putting on masks on your faces. Jesus is telling the disciples and challenging, challenging them. Do not do like the Romans. Be yourselves, do not act, and do not be in two faces. We should learn from this. We should say yes or yes or no is no. We should not keep smiling and putting two faces. Or else, wow to you, you will be shutting down the kingdom of heaven. Jesus telling the disciples, be real, be yourselves. Don't be actors like the Romans. You know, in this theater of Caesarea, we found a statue of Diana of Ephesus and several statues of closed women and a female mask like a head and fragments of statues, reliefs and inscriptions. So they found archaeologists female masks. Read Matthew chapter 23. It's a long chapter. I will not read it for you, but this is an exercise. If you like to read Matthew 23 from verses 13 to 29, Jesus is telling the teachers of the law and the Pharisees what they are doing, they learned from the Romans. They are acting like the Romans. So Jesus is giving them vows and warnings to their hearts. I will read for you three verses from Matthew 23, verses 13, 14, and 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourself do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. So it continues rebuking 
the Pharisees and the teachers of the Torah because they are getting Hellenized and they are doing like the Romans. So they're shutting down the power of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is completely different. He said, you want life? You die for yourself. With Jesus, we live to die. We live to die over our sins. We get life. When you die, I'm talking metaphorically, when you kill the sin in your life, you live. So it's upside down kingdom. And in my Christian walk, I found many Christians, they compromise their values because of the culture. We should resist the world culture and take the values of the Bible. We need to wrestle with the culture every single day and live like Jesus and not like the Romans. What we are building our life for? What will my life show for this short time on earth in this world? Will it show like the Romans? It's all about businesses and projects and money and bank accounts and bought me. And if you look around you here in this theater, all this theater is destroyed. Whatever Herod and the Romans built has been destroyed. Whatever Jesus and his disciples built stands forever. What will remain in the test of time? What did my life and your life in this world counted for? Did we build for ourselves or did we build for the kingdom of heaven? Look what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Verse 20. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And look what's written in Luke 9, 23 and 24. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You see, we, we forget about, we don't focus on these kind of scripture. We have to carry our cross daily and follow him. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Upside down kingdom. So after this teaching, I will give the group 15 minutes break for free time to absorb the teaching and go around, take pictures. And I will suggest that one of the group members who have a great voice, if they can go down to the center and start worshiping because his voice will echo all over the theater. And then all the group will join him in singing. And it's such a great memory to, to do in the theater of Caesarea. Now all the group are standing at a viewpoint facing the archaeology and seeing all the sites of Caesarea. So I will be pointing what you see and the most important buildings. To the left side, where the pillars are standing, we see the upper palace of Augustus housing the public wings and adjacent to it all the way down is the lower palace 
which have the private wings and a swimming pool. The pool in the center was nearly Olympic in size and was filled with fresh water. Even you can see part of it from here. And once there was a statue stood in the center of this pool, according to Josephus Flavius. And then look to the right side, you see what is called the Hippodrome from the word Latin hippo, which means horse. Drome means a track or road, the Hippodrome. This is where they train the chariots. And the Hippodrome seated 38,000 people. Huge. Was 1,500 feet long and 250 feet wide. Some of the stones used to build the harbors break water were 50 feet long and 18 feet wide and 9 feet thick. So imagine how huge these slabs of stones building the harbor and the hippodrome. Anyway, Herod had built a huge U-shaped entertainment complex. What we see here, part of it is remaining. And look to the right side, we can see most of the U-shape, the right side of the U-shape, and look to the left, you can't see it because it was damaged and it was completely broken in the earthquake 747 AD. So we see half of the U-shape. And it was a racetrack for horses and chariots. Did you watch the recent movie Ben-Hur, like a few years ago? And shows the gladiators when the movie started racing in chariots. That was a hippodrome. It's the same setting. Because the chariot races thrilled the crowd. Entertainment, a big ceremony took place. We know that in 9 BC in the hippodrome. Where Herod established the Olympiads in Caesarea. The Olympic Games. That continued every four years. That what the Romans established and we carry it till today. This place was for sports, activities, and entertainment. And if you continue looking all the way to the far horizon, you're going to see a tower. This is the lighthouse. The original tower was three times higher. What you need the tower for? It's like the lighthouse for the seaport. That's the area of the seaport. If you look in the far horizon to the right side, you see a huge crusader fortress. So from this viewpoint, looking at all Caesarea, I will share with you important biblical stories that took place here in this city. And the most important story is in Acts chapter 10 that speaks about the Gentile Pentecost. Now, so many people heard about the Jewish Pentecost that took place in the upper room. But there's an important, the Gentile Pentecost that took place in Caesarea. And many Christians are not aware of that. This is where the Gentile church was born, in Caesarea. And it's all in Acts chapter 10. I will not read all the chapter, but please read it. It starts with Peter meeting Cornelius from Jaffa. Peter came all the way to meet Cornelius in Caesarea. And Peter starts to preach to Cornelius' household. And then the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. I will read from verses 44 
to 48 and explain it for you. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Verse 45. And those of the circumcision, who are the ones of the circumcision? The Jews. So the Jews who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So why they were surprised, the Jews? Because they believed the Holy Spirit, the God of Israel, is for them only. But they seen now the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles, like Cornelius and his household. How come? For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Verse 47, Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized who receive the Holy Spirit just as we have. 48. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. So this is an important documentation of the falling of the Holy Spirit, not only on the Jews, but also on the Gentiles. So this is a revelation that took place in the first century in Caesarea, that the God of Israel is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. A light to the nations. Very important theme in the New Testament. Remember, Peter had the vision in Jaffa. He's an observant Jew, loyal Jew. He keeps a kosher law. And he saw a vision the common and the uncommon coming down, which means kosher and non-kosher. And the voice told to him to eat. How come? How come he can eat non-kosher? And by the way, we're going to speak all about it in details when we go to Jaffa. But the bottom line, Simon Peter did not want to give the message to the Gentiles. So the Holy Spirit obliged him. He was a stubborn Jew. The Holy Spirit obliged him to go all the way from Jaffa, sail to Caesarea, and meet with Cornelius and his household. And because of the stubborn Jew, and by the leading of the Holy Spirit, the Gentile church was born. Also, there's another Jewish stubborn Jew in the Old Testament, Jonah, prophet Jonah. He did not want to go to the Gentiles. He did not want to go to Nineveh. But the Holy Spirit obliged him through the whale to go all the way to Nineveh. As a result, the king repented and all Nineveh was saved. So here the Holy Spirit falls on the Romans. The second Pentecost, the Gentile Pentecost. This is a new reality where God extends his mercy, not only to Jews, but to Gentiles. When we read it in the book of Romans, it's always God's plan to include the Gentiles. It is a book about what God wants from the Gentiles and from the Jews themselves. Let me share with you another story. What we see here is the palace of Augustus. And we can read about Paul transferred to Caesarea in the book of Acts, chapter 23, verses 23 and 27 that took place in the palace here, the Praetorium. Let me read it for you. Acts 23, verse 23. 
Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to the governor Felix. 25. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. You have to understand that Caesarea has the largest Roman praetorium. Praetorium is the area of the palace, huge area as you see. And from here, from this praetorium, from this palace, Vespasian went to suppress the first revolt. And also with Hadrian during the second revolt. And Josephus calls this the most magnificent palace built by Herod the Great in this location observing the sea. Actually, it's not hard to imagine Paul during his two-year imprisonment in Caesarea confined in one of the basement storage areas of this palace. And this palace lasted for centuries. It was ruined by a huge earthquake 747 AD, the same earthquake that destroyed the Hippodrome. So the point I want to make is that the palace complex was the Praetorium of Caesarea. Most scholars believe that is the location where Paul appealed to the governor Festus. And remember, all the time, Paul remains under heavy guard in Caesarea. And when Paul sees that he may yet fall into their hands, he tells Roman governor Festus, I appeal to Caesar. We can read that in the book of Acts 25:11. Let me give you a little background about the Roman governor and Caesar to understand about the appeal of Paul. Let me share with you about the governor Festus. Out only first-handed information about Festus come from the book of Acts and also the writing of Josephus Flavius. Festus succeeded Felix as a governor of Judea about 58 AD and he governed only for a short time like two or three years only. And for the most part, Festus appears to have been a prudent and a very capable governor. And in contrast with his predecessor, Felix, at the beginning of Festus' time in office, Judea was plagued with bandits and riots and a lot of like uh, people against the government. And according to Josephus, Festus, made it his business to correct those that made disturbances in the country. So he caught the greatest part of the robbers and destroyed a great many of them and the zealots. And during his reign, the Jews built a wall to prevent King Agrippa from observing what took place in the temple area. So Festus initially ordered them to dismantle it. At the Jews' request, however, he later allowed them to present the matter to the Roman Emperor Nero, which was a bad emperor. Anyway, Festus appears to have taken a firm stand against criminals and zealots. But 
In his desire to maintain good relationships with the Jews, he was willing to set aside justice, at least in his dealing with the Apostle Paul. And also there was a king at that time. It was King Herod Agrippa II. So let me give you also a background about this king. And he's referred in the book of Acts chapter 25. He's the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Agrippa was the last of the Herodian dynasty. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 12 also, verse 1. And at the death of his father, around 44 AD, he was so young, 17 years old, Agrippa was in Rome, where he was being educated at the court of Roman Emperor Claudius. And the emperor's advisors considered Agrippa too young to inherit his father's throne. Thus a Roman governor was appointed instead. Only in about 50 AD, Emperor Claudius assigned Agrippa as a king. So he was in his 20s, like 23, 24. And Agrippa was in Caesarea with his sister Bernice at the time of his meeting with Paul. So this is a little background to understand the appeal of Paul. And Paul was arrested, transported to Caesarea, where he would go before Festus, the Roman governor. And Paul pleaded his case to Festus. And that's when things went biased. In the same way that Pontius Pilatus once earlier privately declared Jesus innocent, but then handed him over to be crucified. So also Festus declared Paul innocent, yet did not set him free. Remember we said about hypocrites, about how governors are in two faces? This is what the Bible is talking about. Instead, Agrippa kept Paul. The Jewish king could come down and hear him too. So when Paul did, when given the opportunity to face Agrippa, it was outstanding. He did not plead even his case legally. He did not argue his innocence. Paul did not argue at all with the king. It's so similar like Jesus' story. Though he did make it clear that he was innocent. He did not try to argue the law at all. Instead, Paul gave full testimony to why he followed Jesus and why everyone else in the court should do. So that was the most natural thing for Paul to do, would have been to try to save his own life. But what he did instead was try to save the souls of everyone present, because it's not about him anymore, it's about the people to be saved. And Agrippa even scoffed at Paul, asking if he really thought he could convince Agrippa to believe in such a context and in such a short time. Poor response? I absolutely hope so. So Paul was drawing on the promise that God does not forget his saints and that the Lord gives power to his people in the moment they need it. He trusted in this and he declared it. He did not fear or he did not become a coward or he did not manipulate. We should be like Apostle Paul in hard situations to stand firm for the truth. And in the end, Paul was sent to Rome to face Caesar. It was legal, 
but it was not right. He was innocent, but he was condemned. A Roman governor conspired with a Jewish king to kill an innocent man for honoring God. And the innocent man went willingly. Paul did not wonder what Jesus might have done. He did precisely what Jesus done. Again, in a culture where we demand our rights, Paul's humble obedience to the Lord in the faith of personal injustice gives us something to think about what's happening today in justice. God works through reasons and through seasons of ease and also through seasons of hardships, which means whatever season we are in, God is always with us, no matter how unfair the situation is. So we have to remember that. Also, I want to point about something important that once stood here in the center courtyard is Pontius Pilatus inscription. Now they took it out and we will not find it today. And the story of this inscription during the excavations in 1961, a stone tablet was uncovered with a four-line Latin inscription the left part of which had been chipped away and there is a possibility of reconstruction that reads Pontius Pilatus of course I'm translating from Latin Pontius Pilatus, prefect of Judea gave and dedicated the temple of Tiberius and we know that Pontius Pilatus ruled between 26 to 36 AD he was the fifth Roman governor of Judea and why this stone is so much important? Because it is the only inscription in the world outside the Bible that shows and mentions the name Pontius Pilatus. Here, again, we are seeing archaeology proving scripture is right. The actual stone is now in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. After this uh, long uh, teachings and a lot of history and Bible scripture, and the people were so much patient with me. So I will give them 20 minutes break to go through the archaeology, to take pictures. And we meet in the bus because we're heading to the Roman aqueduct. Since Caesarea had no rivers or springs, drinking water for this Roman town was so much important. So it was brought via through an aqueduct. And by the way, there are three stages of this aqueduct. The first aqueduct was built by Herod the Great in the first century. At the time, the new city was founded and dedicated to the Roman Caesar Augustus. And he brought the water from the southern side of Mount Carmel. It's around 7 miles, 10 kilometers northeast of the city and the water flowed on a single raised canal as you see the arches and at the top of the arches is the single canal later on the city grew more and more and the water was not sufficient so a second aqueduct was built by the romans 10th legion in the second century by the orders of emperor hadrian and it brought more water from the same source, from the Crocodile River, 
of Mount Carmel. And it tapped into the older aqueduct and doubled its capacity. This new source of water was added to the right of the first canal. And the aqueduct was doubled in width. Even when you look at it by your own eyes, you will not recognize it. These are two aqueducts adjacent to each other's, but you will not recognize that. Because the builders use the same building materials and style. So it's hard to see that the pair of tunnels were built in different ages. And these twin parallel aqueducts, termed today as the high-level aqueducts, continue to supply water for 1,200 years continuously. But of course it was under renovations and repaired several times. And the Crusader period in the 12th century, a third smaller canal was built that replaced the first two. Because at that time, the Crusader, it, the city was smaller and required less water. So a smaller canal was sufficient. So what I will do, I will give the people time to go all the way down and to explore the aqueduct and take pictures. And there's nice pictures to the Mediterranean Sea. And then I'll tell them to come back to the bus because we're going to head next to Jaffa and learn about Simon Peter and the vision and the revelation he received. Thank you for your time and thank you for listening to this podcast. And I want to announce that uh, the audio book of One Friday in Jerusalem was released this week. The audio book of One Friday in Jerusalem was released and if you want to get a copy of the audiobook of my first book i wrote you can go to the description in the podcast and to get to my website if you like to listen for the audiobook the book speaks about my life story and my testimony and the challenges we had living in the old city of jerusalem it's a real story that will empower you and encourage you to be a stronger Christian. Thank you so much. Blessings.